part one more week from our series in First Peter. Originally, the session had planned this day to be a discussion having to do with the church and its discipline, and in a sense, we're still going to be discussing that. But the occasion for that particular sermon and discussion has, by God's uh, grace and to his praise, been removed. And so we're glad this morning that um, we're able to take a look at something else besides just the discipline of the church. And this morning I'd like to read to you about love's response as we see it in John, the 21st chapter. One of my favorite Bible stories. Please turn with me to John, chapter 21, and we'll read the entire chapter in preparation for our morning message. I'll be reading this morning in the New International Version, John chapter 21. Hear now the word of God. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals, there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. 
Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and, and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And thus far the reading of God's Word. I love the ending, the Gospel of John. John says he's told a lot about the life of Jesus, many of the events, many of the teachings of Jesus, but if we were to write down all the wondrous things that Jesus did and to record every word that he said, and if we were to expound upon the significance of all of his life in ministry, John says, I suppose the whole world couldn't contain the books that would have to be written. By the way, it's a matter of fact that throughout the history of the printing enterprise, there have been far, far more books published on God's Word and particularly upon Jesus Christ himself than upon any other subject that has ever been written upon. John says, but if we were to keep writing, I know he's using what's called hyperbole. It's a literary device to make his point. But he says he supposes the whole world couldn't contain the books about Jesus. Really quite wonderful. What is John chapter 21 all about? You know, if you read the Gospel of John, you might get the impression that John went back after he finished and kind of pinned this as an epilogue, something of an appendix after the fact. And the reason some people have thought that is because if you look at the end of chapter 20, we read these words, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. It looks like a very nice ending to the writing of the Gospel. John records everything. He says, I haven't told you everything, but what I did tell you, I told you for this reason. It looks like the sort of thing you'd say at the very end. And then we have chapter 21. And so some have thought John finished his Gospel and then for reasons which may have stemmed from problems in the early church. Maybe people rumoring, why is John still here? Or why did John die? Or something like that. Or why is he sick? Whatever, we have to have chapter 21. But I don't think that really is accurate. John has a habit of telling us why he writes what he writes before he gets done writing what he writes. If you look at 1 John chapter 5, you'll see the same thing taking place. In 1 John 5, verse 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He says, this is why I've written this book. And then he goes on for a number of other verses to say other things, and it's quite clear that this is not just an epilogue that he, that he adds. And so it seems to be John's habit to do this sort of thing, and there's no reason to suppose then that the 21st chapter of John was not intended from the very beginning. In fact, it fits right into the pattern of development in the gospel, it plays an integral, it fits in intricately and plays an important role. Let's look at the setting here of what takes place in chapter 21. This is the longest 
account of Jesus' resurrection appearances to the disciples in Galilee. And there's some very curious things about this, things which I can't get into this morning because it would take a seminary class and a lot more detail than I'm able to supply even um, to get into them. But one curious thing that I'll mention for you, notice that Jesus is not immediately recognized by the disciples. Verse 4 tells us, Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. Now, that's curious because he's only a hundred yards away. And they look over there and they see this form, they see this face at a hundred yards, but they see this person whom they've been with for three years, day in and day out, and they don't recognize him. Now, you must take that seriously. This is not the first time this has happened. Mary Magdalene met Jesus outside his tomb and there did not recognize him. Two of his followers were on the road to Emmaus that afternoon and he appeared to them. They did not recognize him. And even after the disciples came to shore in our particular story this morning, we know there's something curious about this because if you look at verse 12, John um, says, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Two things are going on. They know from the circumstances, they know from what he's saying and how he's behaving and how he's enabled this miraculous catch of fish and so forth. They know it's the Lord, and yet John says, none of them dared ask, who are you? Well, I mean, why throw that in there? If there wasn't something that would have led them to ask, who are you, except they were able to infer from the circumstances, this must be Jesus. And so there's something about the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, or at least the way that he sovereignly controlled his appearance, that didn't enable them immediately to recognize him. That's a strange thing about this thing, and I'm not going to say more than just that. It's the longest uh, account of Jesus' resurrection appearance in Galilee, and it has this strange feature about it. Notice this about the setting as well. Peter has denied the Lord three times. Peter wept terribly for his inconsistency and his failure to live up to his promise that he would follow Jesus no matter what would happen. And yet, despite the inconsistency and the failure of Peter, Peter still appears to have a place of leadership among the disciples. I wish we, maybe someday we will, have a series on the life of Peter. Peter himself is a very interesting, fascinating figure in the New Testament. What kind of man was this who could so, we're going to see in a minute, be so proud and so impetuous, the sort of man who could step on toes and not even realize that he was hurting people's feelings? And yet, men looked up to Peter. They respected Peter so that even after Peter, with his braggadocious claim that he'd never leave Jesus and so forth, after Peter has failed the Lord, we still see the disciples are looking to Peter for their leadership. Peter says, I'm going fishing. He sets the agenda, and the rest say, we'll go with you. Peter's still the leader. Something else we notice about this, it would appear that the disciples are not really clear as to what they should be doing. Peter says, well, I think I'll go fishing. Some have said this is Peter's inconsistency returning to his fisherman trade when he was been called to be a, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not so sure that this indicates, one, that he was going back permanently. Peter may have said, you know, I miss it. Let's go back out on the lake. Let's go fishing. It may have been a one-time thing. 
It may have been what I think probably is the case, just that he and the disciples weren't sure. They were uncertain as to what they should be doing. And that stands in stark contrast to the day of Pentecost and following, when they know very well that they'll take the gospel to the ends of the world, and they set out on that task. Now, those of you who don't read in Aristotle won't appreciate, as uh, those of us who do sometimes, that uh, Aristotle himself wrote not only philosophy, but he wrote about natural science and about um, things having to do with the natural world in his day. Aristotle says it is the habit of fishermen to fish after sundown and before sunrise. Fishermen fish at night. And this is what our story shows us. Peter says, I go fishing, and they go at night. They're out there, and all night long they're trying to draw and fish, and they catch nothing, verse 3 says. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just at the first light of dawn, at the very beginning of the morning, Jesus stands on the beach, and he gives them divine guidance. He says, children, have you any fish? Remember, they're a hundred yards away over the lake, and I mean, this is so accurate. You don't have a conversation. It's the sort of thing that's shouted out there. Have you caught anything? No! Cast your net on the right side! And now with divine guidance, they put their net down, and all of the disciples together cannot pull the net back into the boat. That's how many they've caught. In fact, when we get on shore, we actually get a, a count. What do we have here? Five, 153. 153 large fish are caught with one dip of the net into the sea. And true to the character of the two of them, John does one thing, Peter does another. John immediately recognizes the truth. John is the mental power among the disciples. He says it's the Lord. Good inference. Peter doesn't stop to think about it. The minute he hears John say it's the Lord puts on his outer garment and leaps into the water and swims the shore. Now, some of your translations may say he was naked. You have to understand that uh, that is an idiom that doesn't necessarily mean all of the parts of his body were exposed. It could mean that he was in his underwear or his undergarments, his work clothes, as it were. Now he puts on his outer coat and he dives into the water. The reason he does this is because it's improper in Jewish culture to give a greeting to a person in your underwear. Not, not particularly well accepted in our culture either. And so Peter puts on his, his outer coat and he dives into the water. He swims to shore. Impetuous Peter. Doesn't stop. Doesn't think about it. Boom. He wants to get out there. Wants to be with the Lord. Uh, I can just imagine the humor of that situation. All the disciples are struggling like mad to hold this net. And Peter says, it's the Lord. Boom, he's gone. And now everybody else is really weighed down trying to bring in these fish. So they bring it into the shore. And when they get to the shore, they see that Jesus has already prepared a fire. There's some bread. There's a small amount of fish. And he says, bring some of what you've just caught and put it here on the fire. Let's have breakfast. Um... The nature and the variety of symbolic interpretations of the 153 fish that they caught is just, uh, it's fascinating. Uh, it's also exasperating for a Bible student. You, you open the commentaries and you read all these fantastic interpretations of why there's 153. I mean, it gets to the point where what kind of triangles can be made with 153 points and 
I mean, the sorts of things you wouldn't expect Galilean fishermen to have understood, and yet we're supposed to have this deep insight into it. Well, I've got a very dull explanation of why John tells us there were 153 fish in that catch. Because that's how many fish they caught. 153. The importance of it is that's a lot of fish to catch with one, you know, laying of the net into the water. Well, they're all kind of hesitant. And Jesus says, come on, let's have breakfast. Everybody eat. And so finally they eat. And the Bible tells us in verse 15, we start getting around to the point now. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and before you even see what Jesus said, you all know what he said, but before we think about that for a minute, try to put yourself into Peter's sandals at breakfast that morning. What's the last thing Peter has said to Jesus? And now here he is, saying, Peter, let's have some breakfast. Peter must have eaten his breakfast with a great deal of uh, uncertainty, perhaps some fear, embarrassment. Jesus has bid him to sit down to eat with him. This is the resurrected Lord of heaven and earth, the one who it turned out didn't need Peter's defense, and yet Peter had sworn that he'd give it and that he'd never stop from following Jesus. Not only did Peter finally flee with the rest of the disciples, Peter, before even a small little girl, would not say around the campfire that night of Jesus' trial, yes, I'm with him. Peter was embarrassed to be a follower of Jesus. And now he's eating breakfast with him. I'm sure some of that fish and bread stuck in Peter's throat as he tried to swallow. And to make it worse, his breakfast ends... Jesus now turns the conversation to Peter and he says, Peter, you know, if I were Peter, I think I'd probably try to turn the other way and pretend I hadn't heard that. Wait, who's he talking to? Peter. Actually, he calls him Simon. And it's a very official kind of thing because he doesn't speak in an informal way. He says, Simon, son of John. He puts him right there, very stiff, very formal, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's obvious from the threefold nature of Christ's inquiry, as well as the accompanying threefold commission that he's going to give to Peter, that we can't separate this from Peter's threefold denial of his Lord. The two passages must be taken in conjunction with one another. What we have here is nothing less than John's account of Peter's official restoration by the Lord Jesus Christ. That in the presence of the disciples. Why did Jesus say, Peter, do you love me more than these? Well, because Peter had not wanted to follow a crucified Lord. When Jesus taught of his coming crucifixion, Peter said, no, Lord, that will never happen to you. I'll see to it. Peter must have been a burly fellow large, the sort of guy that when he tells you to get out of the way, you say, just which way do you want me to move? When Peter said, Lord, no one's going to come after you, I'll stand in the way. Of course, at that point, Peter was told that he was acting like Satan. That must have surprised him. But prior to the death of Jesus, Peter professed a devotion to Jesus, 
which exceeded that of every other apostle. Uh, let me give you one example. Matthew 26, verse 33. Matthew 26, the 33rd verse. We see the kind of thing Peter was wont to say in comparing himself to others. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I will never fall. Though all be offended by you, Jesus, I will never be offended. I realize you've called a lot of people here, and I don't care about these other lackeys roundabout. I'm not going to fall. You can count on me. See, it's enough that Peter would put it on the line and say, I'll never deny you, but he was comparing himself to others. He was the sort of man who said, I'm not sure what you can count on from the rest of these, but on me you can count. You can depend on me. And so now Jesus brings that home. And can you imagine how piercing? It's bad enough to be asked by the Lord, do you love me, Peter? But he says, Peter, do you now think you love me more than these? And so how Peter's sins come home now to roost. In light of these things, Peter has got to answer. Was he right in claiming that he stood above the rest? Would you please notice, first of all, in Peter's answer that he drops all reference to comparison. Peter's been humbled. Peter's been brought low. Peter knows that he was wrong to talk that way. Peter answers clearly and categorically, but not comparatively. He doesn't say, yes, I do love you more than these. He just says, I love you. It's hard to be Christians in the midst of other Christians sometimes, not just in the midst of the world. And it's very easy for all of us, all of us, to draw comparisons not between ourselves and the absolute holy requirements of God, but sadly, comparisons between ourselves and others. And, you know, that's one of the ways in which we soothe ourselves in our sin. Because I'm sure as I look at this congregation and consider my own life, not any of us, not any of us would say we're sin-free. Now, we're not so silly as to think that. But I do think all of us, myself included, have a tendency to say when we have sinned that nevertheless I'm not as bad as somebody else. Lord, I don't know what you can count on from some of these others, but you know you can count on me. Jesus doesn't come back to it and press Peter because he's made his point. He doesn't say, Peter, I didn't ask you, do you love me? I said, do you love me more than the rest of these? He leaves it at that. That's a good thing for us to remember as we go to people and talk to them about their sins. Sometimes the point has been made that the person has sinned and the person is willing to acknowledge it. And then we sometimes like to push on that a bit. It's almost like a doctor who has a patient come to him with a broken leg. And the doctor has to examine the leg to find out if it's broken. Lo and behold, it is broken. The x-rays show that. The patient admits it. And then the doctor pushes on the leg and the patient goes, Wow, that hurts. He says, Oh, I just want you to... Say that you, yeah, it is broken, isn't it? Oh, that hurts. Oh, it's, okay, see, we've made our point, haven't we? It's a broken leg. No, the Lord doesn't treat people that way. He doesn't, when we get to the point of saying, Lord, I'm broken, I'm bruised, and I'm wrong, then start pressing 
on where we hurt and say, see, it hurts, doesn't it? You were wrong, weren't you? I mean, if nothing else, this passage ought to warm your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not that kind of person. We sometimes are. And so, Jesus accepts Peter's answer. But I want you to look now and concentrate on Peter's answer a bit because it's really amazing. Peter clearly and categorically affirms his love. But when Peter speaks, the emphasis in this sentence, and it's very clear in the Greek and the syntax of the Greek, Peter says, you know that I love you. The emphasis is upon you. Peter's appeal is to Christ's full understanding. His appeal is to the possession of a sure knowledge of a truth which Peter recognizes he cannot prove to others by his actions. Peter says, you know that I love you. What lies behind that emphasis upon you, Lord, know that I love you? Maybe a few askance glances from his friends. Maybe some words of ridicule and reminder from those who were with him. Peter, didn't you say you wouldn't give up even if we did? And so now as Jesus embarrassingly turns the conversation to Peter and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter says, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. Learn from this, friends, that in the first place, love is a very important internal truth. There is a tendency among some Puritan Reconstructionist types to so emphasize the external manifestations of love as to forget that love is an internal state of the heart. It's an emotion and an attitude. It's more than that, to be sure, and we're going to see that in this text. I'll come back to it, I promise you. But let's not get to that before we recognize that Peter says, I can't prove it to others. If you were to go on the basis of my actions only, I couldn't prove it. But Jesus, you know everything. As the Lord of heaven and earth, you know my heart. And you know that I love you. Now there have been hundreds of fundamentalist sermons preached on this text that rely on an alleged significance to the change of the verb for love in the question and in the answer. Let me tell you how it usually goes, how people explain this, and then let me tell you why it's not correct. It usually goes like this. Jesus asks, Peter, do you love me? And the word for love there is agapao, from which you will recognize agape love. Jesus says, Peter, in fact, even the translation I have this morning, which I didn't follow at that point, tries to show this by saying, do you truly love me? And then Peter says, Lord, I love you. Not, I truly love you. The agape kind of love, allegedly, is what Jesus is asking for. Peter, do you have agape love for me? And Peter can't say that. Peter can only say he has the phileo kind of love. The kind of love that has to do with the warmth of friendship and companionship, rather than agape. And so what you have, allegedly, is Jesus saying, Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers down here, well, I love you. Now, the second time around, the same thing happens. Jesus says, Peter, do you have agape for me? Peter says, I phileo, I phileo. 
I have this friendship love for you. And then the third time Jesus asks the question, he doesn't use agapao, he uses phileo, he uses Peter's word. Well then, Peter, do you love me? So, allegedly, what you have is Jesus asking Peter twice, do you have this high, superior kind of love for me? Peter can't answer that way. The third time around, Jesus then descends to Peter's level and says, well then, do you have at least this? And Peter affirms that he does. There's supposed to be great significance in that, but there is no significance in that. In the first place, usually people who try to draw distinctions between phileo and agapao types of love in the Greek are doing a lot more reading between the lines than they are reading of the lines in which they find those words. The words do not have the great significance and difference that many people try to make them out to, and the difference that is usually pointed to doesn't pertain to this passage in the first place. By the way, there are other commentators, just to show you how this can be reversed, who say agapao kind of love is very formal, whereas phileo love is warm and close. And so that what you have is, is Jesus asking, do you have at least this formal kind of love for me? And Peter's saying, much more, Jesus. I love you as a friend. And Jesus says, okay, now do you have this formal kind of love? No, much more, I love you as a friend. And then finally, Jesus doesn't descend to Peter's level. Jesus is finally convinced, and now he ascends to Peter's level. You see, when you start drawing these distinctions, then it's a question as to, well, which way should you take it? Did Peter go up? I mean, did Jesus go up to Peter's level or down to Peter's level when he did this? Well, as a matter of fact, there is no distinction. John, throughout his gospel, does this. He varies his wording for the sake of literary style, and that's all it amounts to. And I hope you can see that if you just notice here in the context that Peter does not correct the vocabulary of Jesus' question. When, now, remember, Jesus is asking on our hypothesis about a high superior kind of agape love, and Peter can't answer that way. You would expect the text to go like this then, Jesus. Peter, do you have agape for me? Peter, no, Lord, but I do have friendship for you. But you notice, Peter does not correct Jesus' vocabulary. When Jesus asks the question, Peter says, Yes, Lord. Peter, do you have agape for me? Yes, I do, Lord. I love you. He doesn't say, No, Lord, not that, but I do have this other. The text itself should show us that that distinction is not true to the intention of the author. And even more importantly, Peter, at the third question, despairs. Peter is saddened. Peter's sorry that Jesus has asked this. But notice, Peter is not sorry that Jesus changes the word. Rather, the text says, Peter is sorry that Jesus asked the same question a third time. The same question. He's sorry that he asked, do you love me, a third time. And yet now, now the word has changed. And yet the text says it's a third time that that question's been asked. So we know that there's no great significance in the variation of Greek words at that point. And so please don't focus on that, because the, the truth of this passage is far more precious if you see that.